It's the eve of Waitangi Day exactly a year ago, and Te Rau Aroha, a museum dedicated to Māori who went to war, officially opens on the grounds. Māori Battalion march to victory. Māori Battalion staunch and true. It's a historic day of tributes and waiata filled with emotion and capped off with a special dinner. Among the top officials and iwi leaders is Finance Minister Grant Robertson. He was at, at, at Waitangi. They were having the dinner for, for opening the, the Māori Battalion Museum. But when his phone rings, he leaves the dinner and takes the call. And he stepped out and, and spoke to me, which when you think about you know the, that historical place... On the phone is Rodney Jones, principal of Wigram Capital Advisors, who is to become one of the key advisors to the government on a new virus poised to sweep across the world, COVID-19. And so we had this conversation about the risks. The warning comes just two days after the government controversially bans foreign travellers from China and a plane is chartered to get New Zealanders out of Wuhan. But while most of us are oblivious to the enormity of the threat, Rodney Jones, an economist, an analyst, an Asia specialist and expert in plotting crises, already knows that we are in for an economic and health shock like no other. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly and today on The Detail, the critical moments that led Jones to sound the alarm to the government and the dangers New Zealand faces now. February the 5th last year, a year ago, what happened on that day? So it actually started before, when Wuhan went into lockdown. And as it happened, um, Australian journalist Chris Buckley from the New York Times had made it into Wuhan with a couple of other journalists before. So we were able to talk to them every day from that point. Today on the streets of Wuhan, the the mood was uh, extremely subdued. Ever since last week, the city has been on a lockdown uh, with these um, vast restrictions on, on travel, people not being allowed to leave the city. We're also talking to medical experts in Hong Kong, and we realise that from really from the 20th, when Wuhan went into lockdown. Yeah, 20th of December. Of January. Of January. Of January. So it was actually a bit confusing. So mm. it, SARS-1 was clearer. So we, in SARS-1, we'd heard through the CDC in the US that there was a problem. And so we were kind of prepared when it hit and realised if it was airborne, we had a problem. As it turned out, it wasn't. But this time, without the CDC unit in Beijing, you didn't have the same information flowing. And after SARS-1, they had placed a unit in the US embassy in Beijing. Mm -hmm. And the idea was if there's another outbreak, they can get to where it is and get information and ensure that what's happening is transparent. The Trump administration had closed that unit. So then the CDC was left asking for access to China for the experts, which, of course, was denied. So in these crises, the U.S. CDC is actually more important than WHO. Oh, is that right? And so the change this crisis was that they had been deinstitutionalized by Trump Mm -hmm. and had been weakened, and so they couldn't play that role. WHO, being a UN organization, is always political, slow-moving, but you've relied on the U.S. CDC to take the lead. That didn't happen this time. Okay. Um, so by the t- end of January, it was clear. And it was interesting, we were in Queenstown for anniversary weekend a year ago. And it was clear from the reaction of the Chinese nationals there that we had a big problem. They completely got it. They were in touch with family back home. WeChat was abuzz with what was happening. 
you just had to see what Chinese nationals were doing. Masks ran out in Queenstown. You had to run around to find a mask. It was clear that we were facing a major event. By early February, Wigram was monitoring the spread of the virus from daily data of more than 384 Chinese cities. Good data, which stopped flowing when the event became politicised and China locked down. But the transmission pattern was clear. Their map showed COVID spreading along roads and railways. Some 240 cities were now infected. So by February 5th, it was clear we had a major outbreak. And that it was clear that this was much worse than SARS-1. Yeah. We had the data for SARS. So I ruffled through my old spreadsheets and found the daily data for SARS for China and Hong Kong from 2003. Because you, I mean, you were working and living in China at the time, so you were very close to what was going on there? Yes, and also it's... My grandfather was a medic with the New Zealand Army during the Spanish flu. Mm. And he lived till he was 99, and so I, you know, got to know him well and heard all the stories about the Spanish flu. So I was always aware of pandemics. Mm-hmm. And we thought, I thought mistakenly, that SARS-1 was it. And, that, you know, what we were hearing from New Zealand doctors in Hong Kong at the time was, so we actually left as a family very early on, thinking that was the start of a pandemic. A now, global pandemic. A global pandemic. As we know it wasn't, the case fatality rate was too high, so it burnt out. So people tend to, to see that. In the West, people saw that as, well, it didn't matter. SARS didn't matter. It was storm in a teacup. Mm. In Asia, governments saw that as a warning sign, that the next one, you know, evolution works, it evolves, the next one will be more threatening. And that's why we saw a much greater reaction in Asia. I see. Yeah, they were prepared yeah, for it. Prepared. Whereas in the West, we all had our influenza plans, and we weren't prepared for a crisis like this. I mean, on the 30th of January, it's interesting because the WHO declared... A public health emergency of international concern over the global outbreak of novel coronavirus. And then the government here on the 3rd of February had temporarily banned entry of foreigners from or who have travelled through mainland China. All foreign travellers who leave or transit through mainland China will now be denied entry into New Zealand's big deal. And the government says it could last for up to 14 days. That was the first response, suspending yeah. flights, which, if you remember, was contentious. Mm. There was a lot of criticism of them. Yeah. People were writing, this is going to be a crisis. A lot of leading commentators saying, this is going to be a disaster. What have we done? By then, you know, I was back in Auckland, mm-hmm. but we were talking to journalists in Wuhan as well. Okay. I mean, those foreign journalists who went in and they were stuck there for a couple of months really did uh, an amazing job. And, you know, they ran towards the fire. They got in before the city locked down and were a great source of kind of information of what was happening on the ground. Chris Buckley is a China-based correspondent for The New York Times. He's in Wuhan and he joins us now. I know it's difficult to visit the hospitals in Wuhan. Uh, For those that you've seen, can you give us a sense of what it's like there? We only have a partial view, but what I have seen is uh, crowded fever clinics which have been taking in dozens and hundreds of people, uh, residents who are worried that the fever they have might be a symptom of this coronavirus. So what happened on February the 5th? I mean, did you ring Grant Robertson? Did you see him at Waitangi? Yeah, no. So part of my job is always to be in touch 
with ministers and central banks, and, and we work with governments in the region as an economic advisor. As a, as a, yeah, to exchanging information, mm-hmm. not in a formal way, but exchanging information, giving our view. Um, often, yeah, feeding in. This is what we understand from the business cycle. These are kind of the risks. We've been through a number of crises, you know, the Asian crisis, the GFC. So, you know, crises have happened fairly often. So it's important to have those lines of communication always open. And so I called him, you know, we waited till the 5th because by then we had enough data. I mean, by then, by the 5th, just looking back, something like 240 cities in Ch- across China were reporting covid Cases, of course, we had to be named by them. So he took you seriously, obviously. Yeah, and I think that's where, when I think, why did Australia, New Zealand, the, you know, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea, Vietnam, the Asian countries do well, but then Australia, and New Zealand did well as well, and that's because we kind of respect the information that comes out of of Asia. We have networks, we have connections. In the West, it's, it's, they're more removed. You know, we may associate with the UK and the US emotionally with that kind of shared history, but we're actually in the Asia region. I think our proximity and experience with Asia meant we were more open and in some ways more respectful of what our other governments were doing. And so a week later, you were in Wellington um, presenting a report about the path of the virus? Yes, and the economic shock. I mean, remember there were two shocks. There was the, the lockdown and how... With, with China, our biggest trading partner, going into lockdown, we had an economic shock. Mm-hmm. And the idea that at that, that time the risk looked like this would be one of the biggest economic shocks, that this was a GFC or Asian financial crisis type economic shock. Mm-hmm. Then you had the path of the virus. Now, we were able to lay out the path of the virus in China and we were able to dis- discuss the risk that this, again, being worse than SARS, would become a pandemic. But, of course, it hadn't happened at that point. This was, you know, we didn't, Italy and Korea didn't have their outbreaks till a week later. You just had a few spasmodic cases here and there. You didn't have evidence of community transmission outside of China, apart from one case in Thailand. But by then, were you thinking this is going to spread globally? Yeah, well, I got an email. A friend of mine, he sent me this email a few months ago, and he had emailed me, and he was in Hong Kong. And he'd said... What should I do? And this was actually on February 13, the day I met with Grant Robertson. And I said, it's going to be a global pandemic. Choose where you're most comfortable and stay in place okay. there. So we felt, even though we weren't kind of coming out and saying that publicly, mm. we felt from the data, from the behavior of the data, the infections data, across so many cities in China. And at that point, remember, this was before Xi Jinping came out and declared mm. the people's war. And so the data was really fantastic. We could see a lot of what was happening in China. And it was clear we had a major problem okay. on our hands. And did you give the government specific advice, like, you know, we need to lock down now? And so initially, yeah, I, I was sceptical of, of, of lockdown. So the argument, if you'd spoken to me in mid-February mm. or, or later once we had the Korean, so by the end of February... The view was lockdowns were an overreaction, that if you had a good public health system and good primary health care like we were seeing in Korea, Mm. you could manage it through those interventions, through public health interventions, and not through a lockdown. It was what happened over the next 10 days in March that made it clear that lockdowns were necessary. That was the the change. What do you mean by that? What, What did happen? 
the, what I call the hop, skip and the jump, how you'd see country after country by that point going from 10 cases to 20 to 100 to 300 to 1,000, all very, very quickly. And the speed of that transmission in that first, between February 24th and, and, and early March. Mm. It was by early March that it was clear a lockdown was the only option. We are all now preparing as a nation to go into self-isolation in the same way that we have seen many other countries do. Staying at home is essential. It's a simple but highly effective way to constrain the virus. It denies it a place to go and will help give our healthcare system a fighting chance. Then we were underprepared come March. You know, it, it's, we don't have a pandemic unit. The, the Ministry of Health is, is a funding agency. You know, we, we, we have institutional weaknesses, and that meant that we were on the back foot. You know, in South Auckland, the number of ICU beds, when you ran the models through, um, I remember putting out a report. It was a global report, and we were just going through ICU capacity in countries. And we were saying that um, New South Wales and Victoria would run out of ICU beds sometime in late April, mm. around Anzac Day, and New Zealand was likely to run out a week or two before. If the governments did nothing. If they did nothing. If, if it was let to run from early March, once it was un- underway. So, and at the same time, were you, I mean, you weren't just advising the New Zealand government, you were advising other governments based on your modelling? Yeah, our, yeah we mainly work with investment funds. Mm-hmm. So, we, you know, we produce research and we share that. We share that with a number of governments, either, you know, providing formal advice or just an informational sharing basis. So we were doing our work and we were sharing it liberally at that time. The modelling that you were doing around that time, was it actually playing out as you predicted? Yeah, so we were fortunate we had a biostatistician on our team as part of our data science team because we work with markets and economies. Mm. We have a, you know, a very strong data science team. And this, you know, there's different approaches to this, but there's a data science approach. And you know, we'd, from the literature on SARS, there were models you could use, and there'd been improvement to those models. And you could take those and you could work out, say, what's the effective reproduction rate? That was the key thing. One of the things that, that Grant Robertson said it in our meeting it was the first time he had heard of you know the R value. People didn't know what the R value. No, was, no, was and now it's then. almost <laughs> we all know what it is now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so we, in the first stage, we're just estimating the reproduction rate, the effective R value, and that was clear that this was worse than SARS. Mm. You know, if SARS was two and a half in the initial outbreak, this was three and a half. And but then you can there's different models where you can take the effective R value, and you project what will happen to the epidemic curve. What's the, what's the, what does that imply about the epidemic curve? Mm. And that's what our modelling was doing. What sort of path the country's on? So there's different approaches you can take. But you can look not too far ahead, but you can certainly look a week or two, two weeks, three weeks ahead. When you talk about you know the economic impact, the economic shock, 
But I was reading a Treasury report, I think that was released in April, where it made some um, kind of predictions about what was going to happen with the economy. And it referred to Wigram, and it said that Wigram are among the more pessimistic of economic commentators, likely because they assume that it will take longer to contain the virus. Yes. Well, these crises, you you know, in, in my career I've been involved in, some major crises, mm-hmm. and there's a crisis dynamic where there was the Asian financial crisis, which ended up being much worse than we expected and going on for longer, or the global financial crisis, mm-hmm. or even in New Zealand, you know, our finance companies, the idea that only two or three finance companies would survive and that uh, people would lose their life savings. Mm-hmm. In 2006 and seven, we were making that argument, and, and people thought that was completely mad. You know, these crises have a way of, like an avalanche, it doesn't take a lot to start it. Once it starts, they end up being much bigger than you imagine. Right. And when you're dealing with a crisis, that's what's always important to remember. And that's why early intervention is is critical, rather than letting it become that avalanche. Sure. This year is going to be frustrating, which is what we're seeing with these the MIQ issues we're having. It's like you're nearly there, but you're not there. It's like, you know, with small kids, are we there yet? It's going to be that sort of year. Are we there yet? No, we're not. And while we're not, there's still risks of outbreaks. So I think psychologically, in some ways, it's going to be harder because, you know, there's an end in sight. But that end is beyond reach at the moment. And we don't know exactly when that end. Mm. end will come and then remember you know the emerging world and developing world it's going to take longer you know so for 22 we're still going to have the pandemic raging in places and we're still going to be having to try to contain it through vaccinations it's probably 23 yeah even with great production of vaccines and the ability to modify them as new variants emerge what do you make of what's going on here in new zealand at the moment with this latest scare and the debate around MIQ. Yeah, I've got a view on that. (laughs) (laughs) I I worry a bit that we've got a little bit bureaucratic and that we've lost the nimbleness and creativity we had at the start where we took risk and we were making decisions. And what I think is every person coming into New Zealand should be assigned a risk factor. We can tell. What does that mean? What What is a risk factor? Well, I would look at, you know, what's the effect of RVA in the country they're coming from? How fast is this virus spreading? And just think about how can we model it and how can we identify how risky is this this person? And then we, we separate them out. So that's where I think we're kind of, at the moment, we're commingling from places. I mean, I worry about a daughter to come back from Australia. She is most at risk in New Zealand MIQ. With MIQ, we've lost what we're trying to do. Mm. So I think we need a bit of a rethink. Economically for New Zealand, because we've, you know, I think the economy has surprised a lot of people. I don't know if you, you were surprised about how we've, how we've managed uh, oh, no, to bounce I've been back. Been more optimistic on that as well. <laughs> right. But what worries me is our hesitancy to open up with Australia. I think that's something we really need to progress. And we need to manage the risk that comes with that. Because I think if you take places like, you know, Queenstown, people have travelled and spent, well, what's going to happen in February? Mm. And I I think for our businesses 
and for trade, we need to kind of get the bubble going with Australia. And I think Australians close the border to us just kind of was that frustrated with us. Why are we putting travellers from Australia into 14 week in an MIQ with our risk? But they got frustrated for us. We said we were going to decide in January and now we haven't followed through. But why? Yeah. New South Wales has zero. It was clear a couple of weeks ago that New South Wales was on a path to elimination. What are we waiting for? Mm. We're going to have MIQ leakages. They're going to have MIQ leakages. They chase it down and contain it. New, Australia did the right thing. We've got a leakage. Cut off travel from New Zealand. Yeah. That's what we should do too. Okay. Open the border. Once they have a leakage, you close it till it's contained, then you reopen. Open, close, open, close, open, close. Right now we're putting ourselves on a path to stay closed. And I think that's very risky economically. It's risky in terms of trade routes. We rely on aircraft travelling through Australia to get our trade up to Asia. We need alternates. And for business and for tourism, for Australians coming here. What are we waiting for? Because we've got to accept that there's going to be leakages continually in places. But that with our genome sequencing, with our contact tracing, New Zealand and every state of Australia can chase down an outbreak very quickly. So I think that's that's an issue that should be getting more attention. Why is the bubble on hold? Yeah. Yeah, and then as the year goes on, I think we've turned in wood too too much. I find in our work less interest in what's happening elsewhere. Mm. I think in the 70s we were quite closed. And... You know, we're quite a little socialist and wood-looking economy, and we kind of enjoyed that in lockdown. It took us back to our roots, our egalitarian roots yeah. at the end of the world. And, and I think we aren't, you know, should, when should we be opening up to Singapore? When, you know, Taiwan? Right. Even mainland China. When do we have a discussion with the Chinese? How do we have travel between? It's unrealistic to expect... We've got to start a transition at some point, and we've got to start thinking about... How do we ease back? The temptation is we stay closed for too long. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Rodney Jones. Mā te wā. 